This podcast is sponsored by O's. O's is a premium disposable vape product made with the highest pharmaceutical grade quality ingredients and comes in 12 delicious flavors like velvet tobacco, sweet apple, strawberry banana, grape ice, lemon tart, mango, and so many more. Right now, O's is offering all of my listeners 50% off their orders. So head on over to letsos.com and use my promo code HARMONY for 50% off your order. With O's, you'll look forward to your moment of zen. This episode is sponsored by Doom and Groom. Doom and Groom are a craft hair, skin, beard, and tattoo care company based in Denver, Colorado. Their oils, balms, butters, and pomades are great for use from head to toe, keeping your hair and skin healthy and hydrated. All of their products are unisex, dye-free, chemical-free, plastic-free, and organic. Head on over to doomandgroom.net and use my code HARMONYDOOM for 10% off your purchase. Once again, that is doomandgroom.net, promo code HARMONYDOOM. I'm a commissioner of office with your regional police. I'm here so you can give a truthful statement, either by solemn affirmation or swearing on the Bible. Which do you prefer? Swearing on the Bible. Just put your hand on the Bible. Do you, Jennifer Pan, swear that the evidence you shall give on this investigation shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. Hey guys, what's up and welcome to this week's episode of What the Actual F. As usual, my name's Harmony and I'll be your host. Now before we even get started, I want to say thank you to all of you. Even if you are a first-time listener and this just happens to be the very first episode you clicked on, thank you. Thank you to every single one of you. I woke up this morning to my Spotify wrapped and found out that this podcast had some incredible growth this year. So, whatever state, whatever country, wherever you are, thank you for listening. Now, let's go ahead and get started with this insane case that I have for you today. Today, I'm going to tell you all about Jennifer Pan. Jennifer Pan was born in June of 1986. She's a Canadian woman who was convicted of the 2010 kill-for-hire attack targeting both of her parents. Now, her mother did end up passing away, but her father survived. She states that she did this because of the tiger parenting she endured. Now, for those of you who do not know what tiger parenting is, let me inform you. Tiger parenting refers to a strict authoritative method of parenting. This is meant to raise high achieving children. If you have tiger parents, usually you don't get to go to sleepovers, you don't get to go to parties or other fun activities with friends. You mainly just focus on your schoolwork and priorities in order to have the best future life for yourself. Now tiger parents are nothing compared to strict parents. So now that you know what tiger parenting is, let's go ahead and dive into the case of Jennifer Pan. So that only you're looking away from me. You're looking exactly like now here is where the banister is. Put your hands back behind your back is exactly how you remember they were. Okay. Now and the, are you restrained from movement? How far can you move your hands from the banister? I tied my upper arm. Yes. Around the banister. Yes. But my hands are bound together. So your hands bound together and this is the arm that's the, the strings wrapped around against the banister? Okay, so now how can you get to the phone and how do you make the phone call? 911? Mm-hmm. And do you talk down like that? Yes, I'm yelling at the phone like this. And how can you hear? 
I turned the volume on Max. Yes, so that's exactly the way that you're talking to her against the railing. <laughs> Guys, this case is absolutely bonkers. I know many of you probably think that your parents were pretty strict. Now, no matter how strict your parents were, I highly doubt that any of you stopped for a moment and thought, hmm, maybe I should hire someone to kill them. Well, that's exactly what Jennifer did. Now let's go ahead and talk about Jennifer and her early life and what led her to make this horrible decision. Bic Ha Pan and Huey Hen Pan were immigrants from Vietnam. They moved from there to Canada. Jennifer's father Han was born and educated in Vietnam. He then moved to Canada in 1979 as a political refugee. Her mother Bic also immigrated as a refugee. The couple got married in Toronto and lived in Scarborough, Canada. Their two children were Jennifer, who was born in 1986, and her brother Felix, born in 1989. Jennifer's parents found work at Magna International. Magna is an auto parts manufacturer in Aurora, Ontario. Her father Han worked as a tool and die maker while Bick made car parts. Jennifer's parents worked very hard to provide the life that they did for Jen and Felix. They wanted to ensure that their children had the upbringing and opportunities they themselves had missed out on. Now, although the family had two very nice, luxurious cars, a very nice house, pretty much did very well for themselves. Han and Bic were still pretty thrifty. Now, any of you out there that are rolling in the dough or have parents that are very well off, probably understand the fact that the more money you make or the more money you have in your account, you tend to be a little bit more thrifty. It's like that saying my mother always told me, every dollar saved is a dollar earned. So needless to say, with their thriftiness, they did very well and provided an amazing life for their children. They purchased a large house with a two-car garage on a residential street in Markham. This is a city in the greater Toronto area with a large Asian population. Bic drove a Lexus ES300, and Han had a Mercedes-Benz C-Class. With all of their thriftiness, and even after purchasing a large house and these two cars, they had accumulated still $200,000 in savings. So they did very well for themselves. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not sitting on $200,000 just hanging out in my savings account. Jennifer's parents had many goals for their children, and they had extremely high expectations of them. All of us know what that's like. Our parents want the best of us, usually, but they were a little different. Jennifer was made to take piano lessons at the age of four, as well as taking figure skating classes, where she trained most of her days during the week. Jennifer had hopes of becoming an Olympic figure skater champion until she tore a ligament in her knee. Anyone who's played sports or done anything with the hope that that will bring them somewhere in the future and has suffered a debilitating injury knows the heartbreak of seeing the future you held in your mind as a goal completely, excuse me for making this horrible pun, torn away from you. Jennifer attended Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School where she played the flute in the school band. According to a high school friend of Jennifer, Karen Ho, Han was seen as the classic tiger dad, and Bic was the his reluctant accomplice. This is according to Karen in her own words. 
Now, it didn't just stop with her having to attend her schooling and taking all of these classes. Her parents were strict as hell. The pans would pick up Jennifer every day after her classes would end. They would also monitor her extracurricular activities very, very closely. They never, and I mean never, permitted her to date any boys while in school. She was also not allowed to attend any high school functions. This was out of fear that these activities would distract her from her academic commitments. Therefore, in her parents' eyes, ruining her future. If any parents are listening to this and you are very strict or a tiger parent, I'm gonna tell you one thing. There is a difference between raising a good kid and just consistently telling your child no because you want what's best for them or you want to protect them. Strict parents do not raise good kids. They raise people who know how to break rules without getting caught. And why am I saying this? Because I was brought up by a strict mother and I learned what rules I could break and not get caught. The whole point of being a kid is being a kid. I believe that until you are 18, you should be able to enjoy aspects of your life and the world around you. Absolutely work for your future and do things that can better future you. But being a kid is very important. As an adult, the only things we can really enjoy are the things that we have to pay for, that we have earned. But as a kid, you don't have to worry about that. So to any parents that are listening, I'm not trying to tell you how to parent. All I ask is you let your kids be kids. Now let's get back to the case at hand. At the age of 22, Jennifer had never gone to a club, never been drunk, never visited a friend's house, or gone on vacation without her family. According to Jennifer and all of her friends, her upbringing was restrictive and greatly repressive. Now, despite her parents' high expectations of Jennifer, her grades throughout high school were still pretty average, except for in music. She also would forge her report cards multiple times using false templates, deceiving her parents into thinking that she earned straight A's. But this is only where Jennifer's deception begins. When Jennifer ended up failing calculus in 12th grade, Ryerson University rescinded her early admission. Now, Jennifer couldn't bear to be perceived as a failure, so she began to lie to those that she knew, especially her parents. Jennifer pretended that she was attending a university. However, she wasn't. Instead, Jennifer was spending her days at cafes, teaching as a piano instructor, and even worked in a restaurant to earn money. Now, in order to maintain her charade, Jennifer told her parents that she won scholarships, even later falsely claiming that she had accepted an offer into the pharmacology program at the University of Toronto. She even went so far as to purchase second-hand textbooks. She went so far to purchase second-hand textbooks and watch videos relating to pharmacology in order to create notes filled to the brim, as if she was taking classes to show her parents. Jennifer also requested permission from her parents to stay near the campus with a friend throughout the week. Now here's the thing, Jennifer wasn't staying with a friend. I mean, I guess you could call her boyfriend a friend. A friend with benefits, that is. And I'm not talking about insurance. Jennifer's boyfriend was a man by the name of Daniel Chi Kuang Wong. She met Daniel in high school. Daniel had a Chinese and Filipino background. 
Daniel had a job at a Boston pizza restaurant. Once a student at Mary Ward Catholic Secondary School, just like Jennifer. He was later transferred to Cardinal Carter Academy in North York, Toronto. This was due to Daniel's low grades. However, he would later end up studying at York University. Oh, and fun little fact about Daniel. In his spare time, he took up a few extracurricular activities, one of which was being a drug dealer. Uh, yesterday, meaning uh, the 8th of November. And uh, tell me about your day. Okay, start at any point in time, where, wherever you feel comfortable, and then we're gonna move, we're gonna move forward, okay? Um, yesterday, probably around 9 o'clock in the morning, 9, 9.30, um, my mother, <clears throat> she woke me up and she told me that she was going to go and to visit my grandfather. Throughout the day, Jennifer explains that she practiced piano, studied piano history, talked on the phone with her friends, and had dinner with her parents. Her mother left for line dancing at 8 p.m. and returned home at about 9.30, at which time Jennifer was alone in her room watching TV, ready to go to sleep. And then, suddenly I just heard my mom calling for my dad to come down, and that's when I lowered the volume on my TV, and I could hear the voices weren't any voices I was very familiar with. And so I was scared and I couldn't move. I just sat in my room for a while. And then I thought I heard them all let, like leave the top floor and I peered out of my bedroom door. And a guy was there and he came at me and had string in his hands and tied my arms back and said, I have a gun behind your back. Do what I say. If you do what I say, then no one will get hurt. Where is the money? Show me where your money is. My mom kept trying to get up and they kept telling her to sit down. And so I didn't want her to get hurt. I told her, mom, sit down. They were trying to find her wallet, but she, her English is good, so she kept saying first. They kept pushing her down onto the chair. Okay. Take your time. Take your time. While Jennifer was pretending to complete her degree at the University of Toronto, she told her parents that she had started working as a volunteer at the Hospital for Sick Children. Han and Bick soon became suspicious, however, when they realized she did not have a hospital ID badge or even a uniform. On one occasion, Bick followed her daughter to, quote, work and quickly discovered her deception. In a state of shock, Han wanted to throw Jennifer out of the house. I mean, a lot of people don't like being lied to, and to find out that your daughter has been falsifying her life when you thought she was genuinely achieving the goals that you had helped her, I guess, get to. Only to find out every single thing she had done, said, and was apparently doing was all a lie. So needless to say, Han and Bick were pretty upset. Even though Han was extremely angry about his daughter's deception, Bick, Jen's mother, persuaded him to allow her to stay. This was because she had not yet completed her high school due to the failing calculus. Jen did eventually begin working to finish her high school completely, and later on she was encouraged by her parents to apply to a university. She was, however, forbidden to contact her boyfriend or go anywhere except her piano teaching job. Nevertheless, just as I told you, when a child is told no, they're gonna find a way to do it. 
especially when no is all they've heard their whole life. And that's exactly what Jen did, even secretly going and speaking to her boyfriend and finding ways to see him. By the time Jennifer was 24, her boyfriend had grown weary of trying to pursue a relationship with her. This was because Jennifer was so heavily restricted by her parents and she still lived at home. Not to mention the only time he could see her or talk to her was in secret. Now as a 16 year old, okay, it's kinda cute. You get to keep it all secret. It's a little forbidden love. But at 24, that's just fucking annoying. You don't wanna be with somebody that you can't just call willy nilly and say, hey, what you doing? Or go and visit because they still live at home with their extremely strict parents who don't even allow them to date. Could you imagine being in your 20s, being told that you are not allowed to find any sort of romantic relationship or find anybody that can make you feel something? Maybe it's the hopeless romantic in me, but I would be pretty upset. I'm not someone who needs anybody by any means to be happy, but wouldn't you agree? It's really nice to have someone. Sadly, due to all of this, Daniel did end up breaking up with Jennifer and began to date another woman. Now, this did not make Jennifer happy. After hearing of this new relationship, Jennifer claimed to Daniel that a man had entered into her house showing what appeared to be a police badge. After which, several men had rushed in and gang raped her. That's right. She told her now ex who was dating another girl that a man had a police badge, showed it to her, and then all of a sudden a bunch of men rushed her and raped her. Now I will never be someone who will say that sexual assault claim isn't true because I have been sexually assaulted and I know what it's like to be treated like crap due to what somebody else did to you and nobody wanting to believe you. But that's because of stuff like this. Women and men who lie about being sexually assaulted. And that is exactly what Jennifer was doing. She also added that after this event, a bullet was mailed to her. She went on to tell Daniel that his new girlfriend was the one behind all of this. As you can see, Jennifer is turning out to be evil and wicked. All this is very important, so take your time. Jennifer's nonverbal communication up to this point has made sense, and the reflection of her mother's last moments seems to push her over the edge. It could be assumed the detective still considers Jennifer a victim at this moment, but in the next moment, he will start becoming suspicious. They kept all the lights off on the main floor. The only time there was light was when they opened the fridge door to see if they could find where my mom's purse was. Take yourself back to a moment in your life when you have been overwhelmingly upset about something, and at the same time were trying to explain to someone why you were upset. You wouldn't quietly and reservedly convey the events. You would likely blurt them out in a forceful and disordered manner. Your sole focus would be on processing your thoughts and conveying them into speech. The emotional turbulence of severe hysteria and grief makes it very difficult to convey thought into actual dialogue, and the simple wording of a sentence becomes very challenging. Jennifer seems to be more concentrated on how she's being perceived, yet finds her words easily and executes her sentences perfectly. One of the, the gentlemen asked my father if he had money in his wallet and where his wallet was. So they took me, because I was next to the stairwell, they took me up the stairs to sh show them where my father's wallet was. But I'm, I didn't know. They had turned the room upside down. I didn't know where his pants were at that time. 
The intruders retrieve $1,100 from the master bedroom and then tie Jennifer to the upstairs banister. Next thing I know, I think I heard my parents going down the stairs and my mom was asking them for me to come with them. They wouldn't let me come with them. And after they said, the last thing I heard them say was, you lied, you lied to us, you lied to us. And then I heard two pops. So in between the segments where I'm telling you about exactly what happened, you have been hearing audio that is broken down of Jennifer's interrogation. So let's talk about the murder of Big Pan and the attempted murder of Han Pan. In spring of 2010, Jennifer was in contact with a man by the name of Andrew Montemayor. Andrew was a high school friend who she claims had boasted while they were in high school about robbing people at knife point. So again, sounds like an altogether stand-up guy. She really knows how to pick her friends, obviously. Now, Andrew denies that that was ever true. But Andrew did do something. He introduced Jennifer to a man by the name of Ricardo Duncan. Jennifer claims that she gave Ricardo $1,500 to kill her father in the parking lot of his workplace. Ricardo alleges that she actually gave him $200 for a night out. However, he ended up returning it and refused to help her do anything to her parents. Now, during this time, Jennifer and her ex Daniel were back in contact with each other. This is when, according to the police, Jennifer came up with a plan to hire a professional hitman. Now, she only had wiggle room of about $10,000 to kill her parents. Now, I've never really, uh, I guess, come in contact with a hitman, but $10,000 doesn't seem like a lot of money. To me, when I hear I'm gonna take a hit out on somebody, I don't think it's only gonna cost you 10 grand. And if it would, you're probably gonna get the Dollar Tree version of a hitman. Now, where was Jennifer getting this money from? Because as we know, she lied about everything and didn't have any real money to show for herself. Well, you see, she was going to pay the hitman because Jennifer, if both of her parents passed away, stood to inherit half a million dollars. Now, after the murder of her parents, Jennifer had a plan. She was going to move in with Daniel. Daniel actually even helped Jennifer in a sense by putting her in contact with a man by the name of Lenford Roy Crawford. He was known as Homeboy. He gave her a SIM card and an iPhone so that she could contact him without using her usual cell phone, thus making it, quote, untraceable. However, what we've come to learn in time is nothing is ever actually untraceable, especially when it comes to electronics. Now, Homeboy would contact another man named Eric Sean Sniper Cardi. Now, Eric would turn around and get in contact with another man. Now, let's pause for a second, because listen, I don't come up with a lot of diabolical plans in my life. I've never, ever thought about killing anyone. However, I do feel that if you are making a plan to murder someone, the less people that know, probably for the better. All right, let's get back to the case. Now, this new person being brought into the plan was a man by the name of David, and excuse me, I'm probably gonna say this incorrectly, Mile Vaganam. Yeah, try saying that 10 times. Lenford lived in Brampton, and David lived in Toronto. 
While Eric, who previously lived in Rexdale, Toronto at the time, didn't actually have a residence. He didn't have a home. According to the Crown, or the prosecution, and for those of you that don't know, in Canada, it is the Crown that oversees court proceedings. The Crown stated that David was one of the hitmen. And get this, Eric Sean Sniper Cardi was also later convicted of an unrelated 2009 murder. So again, like I said, Jennifer just had some amazing, great people in her life. And in case you didn't catch on, that was called sarcasm. I'm fluent in it. The murder would take place at the Pan House in Unionville neighborhood of Markham, Ontario. On November 8th, 2010, Jennifer unlocked the front door of her family home when she went to bed. She then spoke on the phone to David. Shortly afterwards, David and the two other people entered the home through the unlocked front door, all of which were carrying guns. Now in the court testimony, the Crown did not establish the identity of the other two hitmen. You may be thinking, one of them has to be Lenford. You'd be wrong. Lenford was found out to actually have been at work at the time of the murders. But what about Daniel? Would he kill for his girlfriend? No, he was also at work during the time of the murders. However, Eric Cardi would later state that he was the driver for those who broke in to the Pan House, and that he selected them and was involved in the plotting of the murder. He did not state that he was one of the three that directly attacked the parents, and to this day, the identity of the person who actually shot and killed Bick and tried to kill Han remains unknown. Now, after demanding all the money in the house and ransacking the master bedroom, the three men took Bick and Han to the basement where they proceeded to shoot them multiple times. Sadly, Jennifer's mother Bick would pass away due to her injuries. However, her father Han would survive. The three men then took all of the cash that was in the house, including $2,000 from Jennifer, and left. Jennifer claimed that they tied her up, but that she managed to free her hands and call 911. Her father, Han, was rushed to Markham Stouffville Hospital before he was transferred to a trauma unit at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. At this point, it was unsure if he would survive. My mom screamed. I yelled out for her. And a couple more pops. Take your time. Take your time. And I think I heard my mom say or moan or something. And then they did one more before they left. And then one of the guys said, we have to go now. It's been too long. And then they ran out the door. And I think once they were out the door, I heard my dad go up the stairs and at that point... Jennifer has clearly gotten her story straight beforehand, yet in the next moment appears to realize how unusual it is that she was able to make a phone call when her hands were tied behind her back to a banister. She hesitates, stutters, and even looks to the detective for approval twice before she quickly moves on. I had my phone in my... In my on me, behind me, that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So I had my phone in my, in my, on me, behind me, that I had hidden there that they didn't know about. So when I, when I 
when they when I thought that they had heard them all leave and my dad ran up the stairs, I whipped up the phone and I called 911. But I, I still hadn't heard anything from my mom and all I could hear was my dad running on the street, just moaning and making sounds. The trial of Jennifer and her accomplices began on March 19, 2014 in Newmarket and continued for 10 months. All of the suspects pleaded not guilty to their charges of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. At the trial, York Regional Police evidence included exhaustive tracking of the mobile devices. All of its text messages traffic, including 100 messages sent between Jennifer and Daniel in the six hours prior to the killing. Further evidence centered around the atypical nature of the break-in, the robbery, the shootings, and all of the irregularities in Jennifer's testimony. Also bringing up Jennifer's extreme obsession with Daniel, her lack of true emotion and confession regarding the attack. The trial also recognized that Jennifer did endure trauma due to the strictness of her parents. Now, a major irregularity that was brought up during the trial was that Jennifer was not assaulted, not blindfolded, not even taken down to the basement, not shot. This would leave behind an eyewitness. And in most burglaries, break-ins, when somebody is shot, everybody is. Because most of the time, these people do not want any witnesses. Evidence from Han, which differed greatly from Jennifer's story, also undermined all of her credibility. Jennifer Pan, Daniel Wong, David Malvig, that name, and Lenford Crawford were all convicted on December 13, 2014, and each received a life sentence with no chance of parole for 25 years. Seriously, David's last name is very difficult to pronounce. My apologies. Now, originally, Eric Cardi was tried with the other perpetrators. However, Edward Sapiano, who was Eric's lawyer, fell ill during the trial. So around the summer of 2014, his case was declared a mistrial. In December 2015, Eric received an 18-year sentence after pleading guilty to conspiring to commit murder. According to Eric, he pled guilty and did this because he did not wish to subject Han Pan to another criminal trial. In this case, though, you've made mistakes, okay? And you're involved in this. I know that, okay? There's no question about it. The only question right now is, are you gonna keep making mistakes? Are you going to go on the route that you've gone on over the years and try to pretend that things happen that never happened? Okay, are you gonna not face reality here? We know that you're involved. We've done our homework, okay? We have to resolve that now here today. Jennifer Pan was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for 25 years for the murder of her mother and attempted murder of her father. Her father, Hand, and her brother, Felix, requested a court order that banned her from ever contacting any surviving member of her family again. Despite objections from the defense lawyers, the judge approved the order. Jennifer Pan is also banned from ever contacting Daniel Wong again. As of 2016, Jennifer is serving her sentence at the Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario. Daniel, previously held in Lindsay, Ontario, was at Collins Bay Institution in Kingston, Ontario. David was held at the Atlantic Institution in New Brunswick. Lenford was held at the Kent Institution in British Columbia. And this brings us to Eric Carty, 
He requested to go to a federal prison in either Western Canada or Atlantic Canada. However, he was still being held at Provincial Millhaven Assessment Unit and awaiting his transfer to a federal prison. He would later be moved to Kent and died in his cell on April 26, 2018. Vic Hop-Han's funeral was held on November 15, 2010. Her funeral took place at the Ogden Chapel in Scarborough. A funeral for Bic Ha's father was also held. This, according to Jennifer, was done prior to Bic Ha's to satisfy a Chinese custom that asked that older members of the family have their funerals first. And guess what? Jennifer Pan organized both of the funerals. Jennifer's mother was buried on November 19th. And the saddest thing about this is Han Pan could not attend his wife's funeral or burial, all due to the fact that his injuries were so severe. For a second, I just want you to imagine something. Imagine having a partner for years, being in love and doing the best that you can, only to see them brutally shot in front of you. You being shot yourself and fighting to survive. Then finding out that it was your daughter or your child that organized all of this. And due to your injuries, you can't even say goodbye to the love of your life. I don't know about you, but I feel really bad for Han Pan and Felix Pan. It is absolutely heartbreaking that Jennifer did what she did. Now I do agree, Jennifer's parents were extremely strict on her and very demanding. But per usual, I don't care what you're dealing with. Murder is never the answer. But as usual, that's usually the choice people make. And as long as they keep doing it, I'm gonna continue to have a podcast. Okay. I need you to listen close to me, okay, Jen? At this point in the investigation, okay, I'm going to be arresting you for murder, okay? Also attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. So there you have it, the case of Jennifer Pan, a young girl who was brought up in a very strict household with extremely heavy burdens and demands thrown on her. A young girl who lived in nothing but deception. A young girl who allowed her obsession over a boy to lead to murder. Jennifer Pan is truly diabolical. I do hope you guys enjoyed the case of Jennifer Pan. This does bring us to the end of our episode. Again, guys, I want to say thank you for coming here every week, showing your support, and listening to the episodes. To all my new and all my reoccurring listeners, I love you guys and I appreciate you more than I can ever say. So until next week, stay safe, I love you guys, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. I'll be facing